Incoming. Santa Monica Airport. It's so nice to be outside. Yeah, yeah. The, all that artificial air in the bunker. It's so nice to be really outside. It has an effect yeah. on you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, you guys are cute. You're like, you're like Chip and Dale. You're so polite <laughs> to each other. <laughs> it's like, oh no, you go first. Oh no, I wouldn't think of it. <laughs> it's a long history. Long history. Yeah, I get it. No, I see that. Okay. Yeah. Shall we? Why not? Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with your hosts Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Phil and Ted's guest today is Gerald Caselli, the co-founder of the iconic rock and roll band and original visual artists, Devo. Part one, are we not men? Gerald is caught in the crossfire of the May 4th massacre at Kent State University, giving birth to one of the most intense punk bands of the 1970s, Devo. And now, your sexy boomer hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. Phil! Ted! We've been in the bunker now for months. I haven't seen you in five, six months. I know, I know. We were talking about it. I said, I got, I got to break out. So we decided to dig a tunnel and see where we'd meet. Of course, you Ubered over, but I did dig. And we popped out of the backyard in our neighborhood here to the most appropriate person, I think, given these times. Yes. Gerald Casale, one of the men behind Are We Not Men, Devo, who is a, well, you're a bona fide rock star. Some kind of rock. <laughs> and you uh, are a Pinot Noir junkie. Yes. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, we're enjoying some, some of uh, Gerald's. That's the only junk I would Yeah, uh, Pinot Noir Rosé, yeah. which is delicious. It's a Rosé of Pinot Noir from a single vineyard in Carneros called Rinky Vineyards. I use one clone of Pinot Noir 667 Dijon. Dijon, the mustard? Oddly enough, uh, there's a connection there because oh. the Dijon... Pinot Noir clone is grown in Dijon, France, where they make the Dijon mustard. That's where it all started. And that's why this wine has a yellowish tinge to it? <laughs> well, because um, you remove the, the skins from the juice as quickly as possible, so it, it only tints it pink and never goes red. Because it's the skins of the grape that make red wine, not the juice. Now, how did you get it? Uh, there's so much to talk to you about. What an incredible career you've had. Uh, but how did you become so knowledgeable about wine? Because from what I read ab about your knowledge of wine, you actually got turned on to it when you guys were working in Paris, right? Well, that's when I got turned on to the finest Pinot Noir. Oh, no, it, ever was, it was actually in Ohio, right? No, it was actually here when we finally got out of Ohio. Okay. From Akron? Yeah, it was 1978 here. here. The long history with it's wine. It's a long thing. I think the most important part is is really your roots, which is Akron, Ohio. Akron. And, and, and how acrid Akron was at the time. Yeah. Oh, my God. You described it was just this cultural wasteland. It was awful. I mean, it was really sad because it had been, in, you know, an industrial boom town, right, from pre-World War II right through to the 60s, and then... By the end of the 60s, it was crumbling, and all those rubber plants were moving elsewhere for greener pastures. Now, this was Goodyear. Cheaper. Goodyear. All of them. Yeah, all Goodyear. Firestone, Goodyear, Cyberlink. Oh, they were all they there. They were all there. Why were they there? Yeah, how did that happen? Yeah. It's an interesting story, actually. Uh, it really is, because uh, it had to do with uh, diplomats who were, you know, going to Ghana all the time and where they settled and where the rubber trees were. And so suddenly it was like, it was really cheap. 
expansive land you could buy and they could put these huge factories that spanned you know 10 acres to these factories to make rubber tires and rubber this and rubber that. They were making rubbers, they were making condoms. And they became ultimately very powerful. Yes. Depending on who you talk to, the reason we don't have streetcars in Los Angeles is because of the rubber tire companies. And the uh, gas companies. Yeah. Gasoline, oil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We could have had a beautiful mass transit system long ago here. We kind of did. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, I remember taking a trolley in New York when I was a kid to go to see uh, to the silent movie theater with my mom. Mm-hmm. I mean... How nice was that? That Well, just think of the sentence I just said. <laughs> I remember taking a trolley to the silent movie theater in like 1946 in New York City, you know? That had to be as exciting on a human consciousness level as a kid sticking a VR helmet on today because if you think about the time that was going on in the context of that time, that had to be mind-boggling, like like into a dream state. Well, you know, the whole post-war era where I grew up, or at least where I was, which I was exposed to, uh, had a very hopeful feeling to it. it Future we, was going to be great. Yeah, because <laughs> we had been victorious in the face of great, you know, terror and evil. We beat the Nazis. Beat the Nazis. And then hired them all to come here. Yes, that's right. So they could build rockets and scare us some more. You that's know? right. And blow up things. It was peak of empire. I was in New York, and as a kid, my dad took me to the 64 World's Fair. That was peak of empire, yes. We were going to the moon. And now there's people that believe we never did. Yeah, well. Oh, please. <laughs> and then the late 60s during the Kent State. But I remember it very well. It actually made me physically sick. Well, it certainly made me physically sick since I was in the middle of it. You were at the university. Yeah. I was a student, full-time. Then you were studying literature? Literature and studio art. I had a double major. And by your own description, you were a long-haired, pot-smoking hippie. A bit. I mean, but a smart one. But yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's still kind of like the kind of more passive, live-and-let-live kind of guy. Like, there are bad people, but overall, the world is good. <laughs> but then well, you experienced something that shattered yeah, not only totally. the country, but you were... You were not only at Kent State when the shootings occurred, you were in the crossfire. I was one of the students participating in the protests against the expansion of the war into Cambodia, expansion of the Vietnam War into Cambodia. Of course, without an act of Congress, Nixon did it unilaterally, did it on a weekend, like a Friday night surprise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so this was Monday morning. And so the students who were activists understood the implications constitutionally of what he had done. And the war was bad enough already, so all the activists against the war were there. So maybe about 1,200 kids total gathering on the commons at noon, except it, the ante had been upped because they had brought in the Governor Rhodes, who was a right-wing fascist governor of Ohio, had conspired with the uh, dean of the University of Kent State to bring in the National Guard. Now, this university was in sort of this liberal oasis surrounded by very provincial, conservative... town of Kent was 15,000 people, the town. The student population was 14,000. So it was, it was civil war. The town was a bunch of, you know, the same kind of people that are Trumpers today. 
and they hated the university and they hated the students and they hated this cultural paradigm shift where they saw the students walking around with long hair yeah. And, yeah, and public displays of affection and they knew there was pot going on yeah that's right you know and um, so this just this was a flashpoint this was like you know the shot heard around the world this is Sarajevo oh absolutely absolutely and so they set it up as an ambush, basically, so that they declared martial law just before the protest started at noon so that that protest was illegal. illegal. The assembly was illegal. And, of course, students didn't understand the history of America and that you could declare martial law and that suspended your First Amendment rights. And all the kids today that just want their next latte and video game, they don't understand that. No, They're they going to get a big surprise. Yeah. I mean, talking real soon now. It's This is all going to happen in the fall. They're going to get the lesson I got in 1970. Trump was out speaking of that. These Democratic-run cities are in chaos, and they're out to destroy the, That's right. the country. And all we need to do is let them come in there, and we'd have it finished in an hour. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a beautifully false fascist narrative based on division and violence. And it worked for Mayor Daley. Yes, worked for Nixon. It might work for this guy because the whole population of America has been so dumbed down. They're not aware of the history of America. They don't have an appetite or a knowledge of the Constitution or rule of law. And this is why he's gotten so far. They, they've been denied a good education because that was a, a plot starting with Nixon. So public education has been decimated. So these kids respond to authoritarianism. Yeah, and also the the public airwaves uh, for the last 30, almost 40 years have been commandeered by right-wing yeah, yeah. Right yeah. uh, hate, hate speech Correct. advocates. And, and it works. And it works. Because it appeals to the amygdala, the, the, the brain, you know, the, the rodent brainstem that we all have. And when there's a lack of a higher consciousness, which has to do with the ability to think critically or listen to information and 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 analyze it then of course all you're left with is the amygdala fear and hate right fear and hate appeals to the rodent brain the brainstem and we've also were raised culturally for 30 second 60 second problem solutions correct well see that's de-evolution and de-evolution is real we weren't kidding we were warning about it and we thought it was more about abstracted intellectual stance than reality and and we turned out to be right and it yeah you know it was mostly a, a student art pose and now it's yeah. like shit this really happened it's a really good way to describe <laughs> it because fire sign theater in our work too we would pose a future it was ridiculous right we pose a ridiculous idea right you know because it was a funny and it was possible. Thought. What would happen if it w the possible became probable? And then it, it, it happened. And we were just as, as kind of th thrown by it as you were, yeah. you know, with the group. Even though your expression, our expression was more intellectual and, dr and dramatically designed, you know, yeah. literally literate. Yeah, we were, we were suffusing it into the music. And, and the art. And the, and the visual message. Visu the visual yeah. messages. Yeah. And, and we, that's, so far ahead of your time. That's how Mark Mothersbaugh and I bonded because we were both multimedia thinking. Yeah. And I was very 
very like obsessed with film at the time and I was a student of of film of going to watch films uh-huh. and the history uh-huh. of films and watching of course the European art films you know I had already been uh, like exposed to films like The Bicycle Thief you know and Andalusian Dog and, yeah, Andalusian Dog and Eight and a Half and, <laughs> I mean I, you know yeah, right. I knew it all and I, that's how I became friends with Chuck Statler who was a guy who was a little older than me that was taking some classes at Kent State not a full time student but he was a film buff and he had a 16 millimeter bull X. Oh yeah, that's how too. this all started. Yeah, and Mark, you know, I didn't really like the music he was playing. He was like in this terrible cover band that was doing prog rock, progressive rock, prog yeah, rock? prog rock. I remember thinking Palmer and Giant and all. You know, yeah, like how many notes can you play? How many time signatures can you? Mark was. Yeah, that's what he was doing. He had hair down to his waist. It was like Beavis and Butthead, and he wasn't really. You know, he was really talented and. And, and and his visual art was exciting to me, but he was not articulate or not, you know, able analytically to talk about anything. But he um, he didn't like what I was doing because I I was the opposite. I was like Mr. Mr. Art School, you know, articulate. You know, I was the guy that could spin a sentence with a definition and, you know, analyze something. But he also portrayed you as a much more traditional musician than him in that you were into the traditional blues. Yeah, and that's he didn't like that. He thought that was terrible. So visually, we liked each other's art, and there was a connection there that wasn't very far apart. So getting back to what became Devo, that moment at Kent State when the four students were, were killed was 50 years ago this year. Kent State is what you've said no more Mr. Nice Guy yeah no more Mr. Nice Guy and whatever smile was wiped off your face and yes. you were seriously it was the red pill moment yeah and smile on the clown is upside down uh, Joe Walsh was there sure and Chrissy Hind was there she wasn't really a student but she was hanging out on campus yeah and she, uh, her boyfriend's friend was one of the murdered kids yeah boyfriend's friend We're Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. We're going to take a little break right now, uh, put on our masks, and walk around the block. And when we get back, we'll continue our discussion with the uh, co-founder of Devo. Gerald Casale. Well, I know, I know, I know, I know. I I tried one last year, and that coolness was too much of a change for me. But maybe I ought to try again, as you suggest. Clue. Ah, here I am on my fifth or sixth spud. Funny, I don't taste the menthol the way I did at the start. Say, (laughs) that's a clue worth tracking down. Smoke spud. Menthol-cooled cigarettes. Yes, sir. The proof is in the second pack. Why, I don't even notice the first pack anymore. But it has its points. Oh, there's one. Makes the tobacco taste better. Keeps my mouth cool and clean and full of a long white tube. Mouth Happiness, that's it. By golly, the Axton Fisher Tobacco Company, incorporated from Louisville, Kentucky. I smoke them, I eat them. Spuds, spuds. You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. To hear all the Sexy Boomer shows and get your hands on our Sexy Boomer bumper sticker, visit SexyBoomerShow.com. Look for Sexy Boomer Show on Twitter and Facebook, and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast right now by clicking the subscribe button in your podcast player. Back to Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet and their special guest, Devo co-founder, Gerald Casale. 
you know, everybody tries to pigeonhole. What is Devo? Devo, they're a novelty band. They're they're a parody band. Mm. Uh, they're they're a punk band. Well, we might have been truly punk because punks show no respect for tradition, and punks do it themselves. Like punks innovate. Don't obey a three chord rule, for instance. Right? Real punks. Right. <laughs> they do what they can think of, and they they abhor illegitimate authority. And that's what. That was Devo. You were doing everything first. You were doing visuals before Talking Heads. Yes. You were absolute freaks in the sense that there's been nothing like you. Right. That was in the peak of, of the punk movement. You really were the punks. I think we were punk scientists. That's what I used to say. Yeah. But you also played three times better and faster. Well, we are much better musicians than most punk bands. But because of Mark, the music was more experimental and obtuse you know it was more abstract was Devo you know self-aware aesthetics yes were we conceptual yes but were we hardcore musicians rockers yes we were that too and we had developed a thick skin because of being subjected to the realities of playing in front of punk crowds oh. who were really abusive and really oh, mean. Yeah. But all that did is make us tougher, right? <laughs> the more they hated us, the more yeah. we're like, we're doing more of this. You were completely new at the time, and as a result of being different, you were picked on. And Mark said that, you know, you guys were sort of a lightning rod for negativity. And it started from the very beginning. I mean, the, yeah. the Dead Boys in New York tried to beat you up on stage for being different. Yeah, we didn't... Um, we didn't fulfill any norms, so of course we were alternately laughed at and feared. <laughs> you know, people go, "These guys are fucking clowns," and other people, guys, "These are Nazis. They're Nazis, man. Oh, Look at they dress, really? they dress alike, and they make those moves together." Yeah, it's not very Jocko Homo. Oh, yeah, right, Jocko Homo. Jocko Homo. Are we not men? Was inspired from a 1932 horror picture. Great, great yeah, uh, Island of Lost Souls. Ah. Fantastic. Charles Lawton. Charles Lawton, Lon Chaney. It's a very disturbing picture. Fantastic. I saw the scene. Are we not men? Are we not men? Are we not men? What is the law? What is the law? Not to walk on all fours. That is the law. Are we not men? You were watching that on some late night local television. I saw that in 1970. I would sit in my friend's apartment, Bob Lewis, my, my collaborator, compatriot, intellectual poet friend, and we would get stoned and on pot. And then, and we both were readers and film watchers, and, and we would watch this program, Goulardi. Goulardi was great. He was there for all the teenage kids who had nowhere to go, all the incels, right? On Friday night, he would show what were mostly B-horror movies, yep, black and white yep, movies. Yep. And he would interject himself into the movies sometime. They'd superimpose him. Yep. And he'd go, don't look over there. <laughs> you know, he'd act like, he thought he was, act, he was acting like a beat, bad beatnik. And he'd have- Ernie Anderson. Ernie Anderson. His son, it's Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah. yeah. Ernie Anderson went on. Well, he got into the porn business out here. Porn business? Yeah, that's what he did. I didn't know that. That's why Paul Thomas Anderson did Boogie Nights. Oh. Ernie Anderson left left Ohio, left the, the, the station and quit being Goulardi, came out here, got all this voiceover work. Oh, yeah, he was huge. And got himself, he met people in the porn biz in no. San Fernando Valley, 
Really? Invested in cameras and shit and started making tons of money. Didn't know that. Yeah. Anyway, the point is, we saw Island of Lost Souls, the original, because of Goulardi. And boy, did that stick with us. That was that. That was it. We have, I'm speaking to you as a brother. Yes. We have experienced a lot of history. Yes. In using the entertainment industry to promote a, a vision of the world. Right. That we hope will be better. Yeah, we were know? trying to make it better. We're that's for sure. trying to make it better. You were almost blamed like the messenger. Yes. You weren't promoting it. No, we weren't. We thought it was more like a warning. Yes, right, exactly. First of all, it was intellectually challenging, so that yeah. knocked out a hell of an audience right there. <laughs> we were asking for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we really were. You were quoted as saying that you were the most misunderstood band ever to show up on the face of the planet. I think so. You told yeah. Charlie Rose that. <laughs> and uh, I think that you were certainly one of the most underrated bands ever. Yeah. If people went back and listened to the musicianship, let alone the concept... And the fact that you married visuals and were in such demand by the new MTV because no one else was doing them yet. Right. I mean, we were doing what became known as music videos before there was that terminology. We thought we were just making short films. And in fact, that was our original plan. We didn't want a record deal. Huh. We believed uh, all the hype touting the newest technology um, and the future, which was laser discs. Oh, yes. And this was in 1974. It was going to be within two years. This is going to take over the industry. So we thought this is great because we, we want to make short films. So we're going to be like the Rock and Roll Three Stooges. We're going to make short films with, with uh, narratives. Two reelers. That's right. And, and we'll put out one, one laser disc a year oh. with like 10 or 12 short films on it oh. that you watch. Hmm. It'll tell the story. And that was the idea, right? So when we made the original short, the 10-minute Truth About De-Evolution, that was the precursor to what we were going to do. Hmm. And certainly had no record deal at that time at all. And, uh, you know, it just... You see how things get trivialized and trampled, and so our lofty artistic ideals got reduced to music videos on MTV. Who then dumped you? Yeah, because as soon as they as soon as they went national, they started in three cities and they begged us for our films because we didn't have any content. So as soon as they went national, it was like they tied their video playlist to the top 40 FM playlist in America. And so unless you were in the top 40, your videos are gone. And so suddenly we were shit on. We were the red-haired stepchild. It's like, hey, Devo, sorry. Yeah, you can give us that video, but that song's not on the charts here. Wow. And in 77, we were playing our collective butts off, night after night after night. So we were the, the funky, white, nerd version of James Brown. You know, we... It was, the stuff was more conceptual, but from the waist down, it was James Brown. <laughs> you know, it was so tight. New York at the time was bankrupt. It was a rough town. It was nasty. What you guys were doing was already reflecting, not the future. You were reflecting, right. in many ways, the present. Well, I think you're right. I, yeah. That's what resonated mm -hmm. so much. Mm -hmm. Now you've been discovered by what you would imagine at the time would be your absolute dream, Brian Eno. And David Bowie, Iggy Pop, they all loved us. And Tony Basil, we really felt vindicated because people that we looked up to and respected 
came and saw us and liked us. Yeah. That's an amazing feeling. At the time, I was uh, big into Bowie and Roxy Music and... Sure, great stuff. And I ran into you by accident at Max's Kansas City in 1977. I went because my roommate was the booker at Max's and said, hey, Bowie's coming down tonight. Some band's coming in that he was thinking about producing. I said, who? He said, I don't know, man. No, not the who. (laughs) (laughs) There's some some band out of Ohio. So I went down to see Bowie and was standing at the bar and Bowie showed up with, I think, David Byrne Mm. and they started drinking Heineken's. They drank a lot of Heineken's (laughs) and they were having a good time and I was just, you know, watching that in amazement like, who's he checking out? (laughs) And then this movie on stage started to play and that was Boogie Boy and everybody's like, okay, because it's Max's and it's 77, so it's okay. And then (laughs) five guys in yellow rain slickers, at least that's what it looked like, in the dark, ran by, literally ran a foot in front of me, <laughs> wham, 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 with their guitars, and ran on stage. I was like, what the? And then you plugged in, and it is on YouTube. You can see these yeah. performances, and I watched them yeah. again last night, and I have to say, I still think it's some of the best performances I've ever seen you guys do. And you just brought the house down, and I remember laughing with excitement. Well, we were exciting and entertaining to people. Everybody was lifted in that bar. It was just such an imprint. Oh, yeah. It was so over the top. Intense. And so funny. Yeah. Not ha-ha funny, though. <laughs> I don't think I ever saw Devo smile on stage. We well, No, we didn't. We left the laughing to others. We weren't ha-ha funny. It's like uh, Pesci in, uh, in Goodfellas. It's like, what? Funny like a clown? I make you laugh? I amuse you? Right. you know? <laughs> in 77, Bowie showing up yeah. led to you getting in touch with... Uh, because he was too busy because he was really peaking at that point. Well, he kept delaying things. He kept saying, I want to do it, I want to do it. But he put us in touch with Brian Eno when I couldn't take it anymore. They did the Berlin Trilogy, which is legendary, Eno and Bowie, which was uh, Low and Heroes. I love Low. And and The Lodger. Amazing. Here you are in really rarefied territory. Well, you're working with Eno, and then Bowie's showing up, and you're going to Eno's lair in Germany to record this. Eno offered to record your first record as producer on his dime so you could maintain your creative freedom. Eno, yeah. Eno, Eno said, I'm not worried about this because basically he had, had, had he and his manager had, had conversations with Warners who offered us a right of the first refusal deal. So we already knew what the deal would be. And he knew fucking well that they're not going to pass on this record. So yeah, he fronted about 40 grand, which back then is a big yeah, amount of money. Yeah, a lot of money, sure. It's probably about 200 grand. Easily. So now you're working with some people called the godfather of new wave and punk. He produced the B-52s, Talking Heads. Had he? I thought he went to work with Talking Heads after us. All after you. He later became this. I mean, so he became a big deal. He was not a big deal as a producer when when he got together with Debo. He was trying to break into producing and he was Mr. Art and we loved Mr. Art. Because we loved him with Roxy Music, but then he turned around when, when we heard Here Come the Warm Jets, we went, okay, this is really great, you know. And Babies on Fire. Um, oh, yeah, 801 Live. I lost a significant amount of my hearing on that record alone. <laughs> but working is another thing. Yeah. I've heard all sorts of fun stories about that. Well, he was Mr. Sensitive at that point. He wasn't the guy with the feather boas and mm. the glitter and the long hair. He, he was a, like... A conservative English gentleman with he had chopped his hair short, yep. uh, what was left of it, and uh, 
he had this little, you know, the, the English V-neck sweater that has like a, a horizontal woven pattern like Paul McCartney and all of them used to wear. And, and you know, a button-down uh, powder blue shirt. Well, you he know. just reinvented himself all the time, yeah. which is part of his fascination. And he had like, a, you know, rust-colored um, pinwheel corduroy flares on <laughs> and, and brown loafers. Yeah. I have that in my closet. Yeah, but you'd never think that after seeing some of the Roxy music albums. Well, that's covers. what I mean. No. <laughs> and so we're meeting with him in New York at his hotel, and he's sipping tea. And he's very smart and very, you know, oh so gentlemanly. And, you know, he enunciates clearly. And he, he just, you know, it's like, wow, okay. This guy, though, what, he, what he's saying, he, he gets it. He gets what we're trying to do. We really thought, you know, like he verbalized it, that he got it. Yeah. But, of course, when we got into the studio, he, he couldn't help but be the new Brian, which he, he was, you know, he was Mr. Transcendental, right? He had created those oblique strategy cards, and he had been doing meditation, and he was a Buddhist, and so he kept trying to make our brutal industrial sound pretty. <laughs> like, he, he wanted to, like, soften it up. Really? Yeah. He thought, okay, this is too far. Like, hey, do you guys want to be commercial, or do you want to make a point? You know, it's like, we want to make a point. Yeah. <laughs> Are you saying that metaphorically, or did he really no, say No, he, he would say, let me try this, let me try that, and we'd let him try, and he'd put things on it, and it put beautiful harmonies and soaring synthesizer sounds that, yeah. you know, start to imitate string arrangements or whatever. And we thought, what the hell? Because he, he made noise leads in, in, yeah. in Roxy Music. Right. Editions of you and and it was like that was so much more exciting than a guitar lead, yeah, right? Yeah, so we're thinking okay see he's moved on you see and we didn't understand it yet because we were pretty hardcore and we were you know we had been formed by the hard realities of, of the Midwest and and we had been honing these songs Some of the songs were three years old. and We'd been playing them in clubs when you did your album with Eno You were playing complete songs over and over again. Oh, yeah we would go in the in the large recording room that had been all, you know, outfitted with sound baffles. You could all see each other. Yeah. And so the drums, bass, and guitar were playing live together until we got what we liked. Then Mark's synthesizer parts were overdubbed and the vocals were overdubbed. Eno said he liked you guys, but that you were difficult. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. What happened? Well, because we had you know, very, very deeply held musical convictions about the songs we'd lived with and knew how we wanted them to be. It's your first record. That's what I mean. It's like, come on, are you really going to just let suddenly your whole sound and idea change because you're in Germany and it's Brian Eno? You're going to, like, do something that you don't even feel like you've been able to digest or, or, or you know, like, wrap your head around to, to buy into? I mean, it's tough. Young guys that haven't made it yet. So what happened? Well, we, we Brian did some important things, and certainly him and Connie Plank determined the whole sound of that record. And a lot of cool things on that record. Great record. Well, it has a sound that to this day, A, doesn't sound like any other record from the time, and B, is is timeless because of that. Like... You don't go, oh, that's 1978. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know. Right. It does, it's like, what the fuck is this? It's pure art. <laughs> and still, you know, he was adding a few things, and he put his voice on a few things yeah, to harmonize. Yeah, his voice in Uncontrollable Urge is great. His yep. harmonies. And he created the, um, 
that whole sound on Mongoloid with the backwards snare slap. Bum, 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 you know. Yeah. Created all that and, and lifted the song another level because of it. He included all these uh, Tibetan monkey chants on um, Giacomo during the part that breaks down into a kind of a, you know, jungle. Yeah. He did all that. Oh, really? Yeah. And shrivel up. Um, he he worked out with Mark that sequencer line that we all played to. That was the only song that we played to a sequencer line. It goes. And it, and it has these kind of echoey, spacey, scary kind of effects on it. He created all that that we played to. But then you felt... He didn't like the pretty synth sounds that we pulled out. When you were in the mix session, everybody was staring straight ahead at the speakers during the mix. <laughs> and he was in the middle and you guys were around him. And while everybody was staring straight ahead, you guys Boom. slowly went down. with your hand and you mixed down his pots. Yeah. Ah. That's what he didn't like. And also he didn't like the fact that we had a sense of humor yeah. and were making fun of the oblique strategies. So he'd make us deal these cards and read them and go, okay, now what does that tell you? And of course we'd have some smart ass answer, not because we were stupid, but because we thought it was ridiculous, this, you know, pretentious kind of zen. One more anecdotal thing about that that I heard someone say, it was Mark or you, but that at night, when you were you couldn't go anywhere because this place was remote. Yeah, it was pretty remote. And Bowie was hanging out a lot. So it was you, Devo, Bowie, and Eno. And I think it was Mark that said that Eno and Bowie, even though they were in the middle of their trilogy, which is considered some of the greatest ever, they were bickering a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't even remember. I think Mark said it was because Eno did not feel as though he got proper credit. Oh, well, there you go. For his contribution to the project. And the two of them went back and forth in front of you guys, and it was just a little <laughs> awkward. Well, I mean, Bowie was a huge superstar, and Brian was up and coming. And Bowie's actually, you know, notorious, was notorious, over and over and over for appropriating other people's stuff. He never gave anybody credit, really. Pinups. The story was Brian Ferry was doing yeah. a, a record of covers, yeah. and Bowie got wind of it and, yeah, and put said, out okay, pinups. I'm going to do that. Yeah. It goes all the way back to Lindsay, whatever the... The guy that he was studying under, Lindsey Kemp, he took a bunch of shit from him for Ziggy Stardust. Uh, huh. You know, it goes way back. Every, I mean, the joke used to be, don't show David anything unless you want to see it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that included all the stuff he was wearing on stage, and, you know, it was just all nicked. I mean, he, but boy, <laughs> did, he had, did he have good taste on, yeah. to nick. Were you managing your career? Well, yeah, we had no manager then. I was the de facto manager, yeah. yes, because well, I had the strategy. And I yep. And I kept going, no, you know, I read this book by Clive Davis, so you ah. can't give up your publishing and you're right. looking for a production deal because that way you control the money. You know, yeah. you'd hear about these groups, oh, $3 million deal, but the record company's spending that $3 million. Yeah, you yeah. aren't. Right, right. But you're going to pay it back. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 you give us the money and we decide how to spend it. Yeah, That's what Fireside did. And like your group, we split everything equally. I don't know how long that lasted. Well, from the beginning, I knew that wasn't going to work. Um, <laughs> but I had studied enough about reality in the music business because I had friends that were involved with Joe Walsh and the Eagles that I listened to. Mm -hmm. So I knew what could happen. So I thought, okay. When you all are 
in a rehearsal room writing a song and only one guy or two guys wrote it but the rest are working their asses off mm-hmm. countless hours i mean hours you can't even log right yeah, to yeah. make this song work and maybe they contribute a line over the top maybe they mm-hmm. contribute a sound whatever it is a harmony maybe a rhythm pattern mm-hmm. maybe a harmony we have to reward the loyalty so this yeah. was way before this is way before like you two and you know bono doing that so uh, i said well why don't we have a publishing company you know the where the publishing side not the writer's side mm-hmm. the publishing side is us so when a dollar comes in 50 cents goes to us 50 cents goes to the writer or writers that's how they shine right you know economically and get ahead but then these people aren't left behind and that encourages you to be loyal and part part of the enterprise right mm-hmm. same thing on the masters when an album gets sold the writers are going to get their share but the masters can be owned by the group because they all played on it right that's right. And in our case, we didn't have outside musicians playing on it. Right. So those were all just us playing, right? Yep. Nobody else. That was the fairness. Uh, that worked because it, it honored the, the, the group collaboration. That arrangement of sharing the publishing the way you did must have contributed to what I saw as, honestly, uh, the tightest rock and roll right. band I've ever seen. Right, we really played together. Boy, you were a unit. <laughs> yeah, that was the whole idea. The guitar work. Well, Bob Mothersbaugh was a great guitar player. And Alan and I were the robot machine. You know, we were, we were the drum and bass machine when there were no machines. <laughs> ah, true. Mm. And what a drummer. He was incredible. Yeah. He, he made it easy to stay with, with the tempo. And he was a jazz drummer. Yes. And he just knew how to... He could play all night because of his discipline and his training. Mm. He could... He could end the night hitting the drums as hard as he hit them at song one. Wow. He really could. And, you know, we uh, in recent years, you know, when suddenly people were using pop songs in commercials and movies, mm-hmm. we were asked over and over to re-record Whip It with parody lyrics, right? So we went back to the original recordings of the multi-tracks, and there's a, you know, there was an agency that wanted to use a section of Whippet with parody lyrics, and they wanted to cut to the song. And we said, you know, back then, we didn't play the click tracks. That's all real. And they go, ooh. <laughs> and, um, you know, one of Mark's engineers said, well, we can beat map it, which that's a thing now where they can put, you know, an outboard digital device that tracks what happened at the time right and maps it so you know the bpm at any given point well what we found out was that alan myers when he played whip it beginning to end on the take that we used from the record plant in 1980 he varied two bpm somewhere on the change in the middle of the song and then ends at the same bpm as the song started at 2 BPM over 3 minutes. Wow. How about that? Is that a human fucking machine or not? Smart Patrol Mr. DNA. Mm-hmm. I remember the day I first heard that. Mm-hmm. I took it home. I put on headphones. I sat in a chair. And I listened to it at high volume. 
and it was like having brain surgery. <laughs> Some of the lyrics, we shoved the poles in the holes. I'm tired of the soup du jour. Suburban robots monitoring reality. Mm -hmm. These were your lyrics. Then I wrote them. Wow. That's how I felt back then. He's been with the world. He's tired of the soup du jour. He's been with the world. I want to end this prophylactic tour. <laughs> Afraid nobody around here understands my potato. I think I'm only a spud boy looking for a real tomato. <laughs> Spuds and mutants were tossed around a lot yeah, on oh stage. Yeah, we had a whole vocabulary. And actually, that vocabulary started with Bob Lewis and I. We, those terminologies, because Devo, Devo was an art movement, art Devo, that came from de-evolution before I applied it to music with Mark. Aha. Uh -huh. mm. So we had our own vocabulary. Uh, pinheads, m mutants, spuds, the wad. These were all... What's, what was the wad? The That's the, the mass. The mass, yeah. The unwashed. Yep. Okay. You know. Actually, it was bozos, uh, berserkers. Sure, you had it too. Yeah, right? we, we all, yeah. You know, Absolutely. you label things that you experience, yeah. right? Do you think it didn't hit mass appeal because the themes were things like through being cool? Yeah. And of course. We weren't talking about, you know, getting laid or losing your baby. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> but you were speaking to the times. Oh, yeah, we thought so. We had nuclear power plants sure. melting down. Sure did. We had all sorts of things going on. Sure did. Um, your energy domes, mm -hmm. which, by the way, nothing says now like the energy dome hat with the face shield. Yeah. Yeah, ah, how about that? Right. That was a nice touch. That was not my idea. I'm always willing to admit things <laughs> that are not my idea. That was a company that proposed it to our website operator. He said, hey, you know what? We're making these PPE face shields here in North Carolina, and uh, wondering if your Devo guys uh, would want us to make a face shield for them. Wow. So it was like, wow. That's wild. I know. Where did the energy dome come from? I grew up blue collar and Catholic and hated every moment of it. And uh, I would go to school at this place that was built in the 30s. It was very Art Deco elementary school. And the ceiling fixtures were imagine the red domes except in white milk glass hanging from three chains and to avoid looking at the nuns who freaked me out i would stare at these things and i was already a, an artistic kid i'd draw and everything yeah i just became obsessed with those and so somewhere in 1974 bob mothersbaugh had this comic book of little lulu Little Lulu, yeah. Little Lulu. And there's this episode, he showed it to me. He goes, look at this. And she's like, she can't stand all the kids saying all these mean things in school. So she comes up with a cancellator helmet. And the, the <laughs> cancellator helmet was basically a knit hat with earmuffs. But the knit hat was shaped like a ziggurat, like an Incan ziggurat. And it was red. Oh, my gosh. And... So you pulled a David Bowie and you stole it. Well, kind of. I put two and two together. You know, it's like, you know what? That reminds me of those ceiling fixtures. What if we made a hard-shaped form, yeah. right? Well, then nothing happens, right? It's Akron. It's 74. Nothing happens. Fast forward six years later, and now we're doing some, like, Devo's version of synthesized-infused R&B on these songs for what becomes Freedom of Choice record. 
And I just remembered all that from way back when wow. and thought, now we can do it. Now we have money. Wow. Now I can get these made, right? Yeah. And I went to my friend, you know, John Zabrucki, my good friend, owned Modern Props, who was a genius. I said, you know anybody that does vacuum forming? He goes, oh, yeah. He hooks me up with a guy named Brett Scribner. I show him the hat on a graph paper because I've worked out the proportions for a human head. And he goes, you know what's wrong with this? I go, no, what's wrong with it? He goes, the sides are too straight of each tier. We'll never be able to pull this from a vacuform mold and that's oh. just slant. I go, okay. So he tweaked the design and we went up to his studio in San Fernando Valley and he made some preliminary molds and there it was. <laughs> that's it. There's a lot more to talk about. Right, we can go back for part two, round two. Love to. It's Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. We'll continue uh, our discussion with the uh, co-founder of Devo, Gerald Casale. You've been listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. Join us next for part two with Gerald Casale. To the moon and back. How Devo is discovered in a New York City punk club by David Bowie, launching them into a platinum record sensation that all came crashing down. Or, as Gerald calls it, devolution. Spud, written and performed by the Firesign Theater. Music by Eddie Betos and the Nervous Brothers. I'm a earnest guy. Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show is produced by RadioPictures.com, the makers of fine podcasts for boomers. Okay.